Welcome to Season 5 of American Political History, Rise of the Metropole, Carolina Colony. Unlike Virginia and Maryland, where immigration of Europeans to the colony was one of the greatest challenges, Carolina could expect a rush of seasoned farmers and servants from the West Indies who were willing to pay their own way. They also could expect disaffected settlers from Virginia, Maryland, and New England looking for a fresh start, or fleeing repression and corruption of those governments. The proprietors offered headrights of 100 acres, plus 50 acres for every manservant capable of and equipped to bear arms and militia service when called upon, along with 30 acres for every woman servant brought to the colony in the first five years, and any indentured servants were to receive acres of their own when they finished their service, 10 acres for men, 6 for women. The local government of Albemarle would charge a half-penny rent per acre, or, as we call it today, property tax. Additionally, 20 acres would be reserved for the proprietors and their governors in every settlement. After reviewing these terms, in 1665, Governor Barclay would appoint William Drummond, yes, that same soon-to-be revolutionary and second to Bacon. He was appointed for a three-year term along with a council of six to help him administer the colony in northern Carolina. Drummond and the council would move, since they had received their headrights, to lower future headrights for new immigrants, agreeing to headrights of 80 acres per household, down from 100 acres per freeman, with additional rights for every servant. And these headrights would become a sliding scale that lowered each year after 1665, as those that got theirs wanted to share less and less with the new outsiders. This quickly meant that when you settled in Carolina, you would receive lower headrights than standard Virginia or Maryland. Additionally, the half-penny rent was also higher than the other colonies. These factors slowed the expected rate of immigration coming into the Carolina of small farmers, and meant that most of the immigration became purchases of large tracts of land by rich investors, who were looking to start plantations modeled after the large Caribbean plantations. These plantation owners quickly looked for tenants to work their new lands. All of this meant that the start of the Carolina colony was much more like a colony in the West Indies than, say, New England family immigration or small planters of Virginia and Maryland, which was fueled by indentured servants hoping one day for their opportunity to be able to own their own lands. The initial northerly settlements lacked a central deep-water port which could have handled large transatlantic ships, so most of the trade supplies had to be purchased from Virginia, making Northern Carolina as an economic dependent of Virginia. Most of the immigrants were from Virginia and Maryland, and the immigrants, when learning of the sliding scale of head rights, well, it was a minor crisis of the time as they demanded to have the same as they would have received in Virginia. By 1668, the newly appointed legislature was petitioning the proprietors for the same head rights as Virginia, arguing that this would encourage growth, which would increase the proprietors' total rents and revenue. Their demands were granted by the proprietors in 1668. But the proprietors also decided to raise the rate of rents. This increase in property tax rate continued to slow the growth of northern Carolina for many years. In the south, there were negotiations with the proprietors for a new Puritan settlement to be established by New England immigrants, but this would eventually fall through. The new West Indies investors 
were demanding corporate self-governance beyond that of even Virginia. This was rejected outright by the proprietors. Why would they relinquish their rights for nothing? Carolina would face a new colonial administrative issue. There were lots of English that now lived in the New World. These immigrants could just as easily start settling land claimed by the English crown, with or without the permission of the proprietors. The proprietors no longer were the only game in town for sailing to the New World, as was the case with the Puritans in Plymouth. There was quickly three Carolina settlements, each with their own governors, council, and representatives and assemblies. Albemarle, which was the counties established by the Virginia and Northern Carolina, Port Royal in South Carolina, which was nothing more than a small fort at the mouth of a river. At Cape Fear near Wilmington, North Carolina today, there would be established the Charlestown Settlement, which was up the Charles River from Cape Fear. Charlestown, much like the Puritan Settlement in Plymouth, just started without any legal standing or official rights from the proprietors, betting that once a settlement was established and they were paying the proprietors rents, what proprietor would kick them out? Both Port Fear and Charlestown would face a string of difficulties. First was that they never established native relations, which quickly became poor and then hostile. Having poor relations with natives on its own was not insurmountable initially, but when the settlers faced other adversities, their mistake compounded on them. They had no local partners and could not trade for basics like foodstuffs. The second issue was political discontent. When news eventually spread that the headrights for each settlement in Carolina had been negotiated differently, those that had received the lowest amount of acres as headrights became unruly to the brink of revolting against the proprietors. The third issue was simply bad luck, which compounded the other two issues even further. The relief ships that had been sent to get aid from England encountered bad weather. The proprietors' leadership and reaction to this growing crisis was poor and ineffective. In Cape Fear, the proprietors overrode the existing developed land-grant system legislated by the settlements themselves, and they did this to favor their own personal land grants. This action politically separated the most successful within the settlement from the proprietors, and in 1667, the proprietors were so desperate they offered double head rights, delayed rent collection for years, but by then it was already too late. By the fall of 1667, Cape Fear was abandoned, shifting most Caribbean investment to Port Royal on this Southern Carolina settlement. Surveyor John Vassell would complain of the proprietors. Unless you were prepared to assume more responsibility properly belonging to their position, the successful colonialization of Carolina was hardly to be expected. And so within just a couple of years, three settlements turned into just one proof that John Vassell's criticism was entirely accurate. Still, the proprietors were not interested in personally overseeing an American colony. They were getting old or had higher honors and responsibilities to attend to in England, except for one, Cooper, now appointed as Lord Ashley, who in 1672 would be elevated to the Earl of Shaftesbury. He was younger than most of the other proprietors and took this challenge of the Carolinas on himself. First, he got the rest of the proprietors to agree to invest another £500 into the investment. Lord Ashley would use these funds to invest in resettlement at Port Royal, providing new settlers with required arms, tools, and provisions for their settlement. 
Lord Ashley did little to address the complaints of the prior failed settlers. What he did was oversee the initial proprietor's investment into defense, provisioning, and leadership in the settlement for its initial years of planting. With these changes in policy, the southern colony would become seen as a great investment opportunity. The plantation investor that discovered the best cash crop there could and would become fabulously wealthy, and by doing so would provide the proprietors rents that would make them wealthy. The appointed Port Royal officials would lean into this investor market. One of their first actions was setting up a general store with goods procured from England and offering new plantation owners store credit of 10% interest only. Now that both supplies and credit were available, Port Royal had become one of the best colonies for investing into experimental plantations. Lord Ashley would later explain his actions. We aim not at the profit of the merchant, but of the encouragement of the landlords. We have to remember the difficulty of this type of crop experimentation in the 17th century. There were no chemically designed fertilizers with perfect, specific manufactured tolerances. This was trial and error in a new country no one had lived in, when each crop or experiment took seasons to see the results and could not be isolated from weather, nature, luck of the seasonal growth. Farmers in the Carolinas tried to initially grow cottonseed, indigo seed, ginger, silk, sugar, olives. A few years later, they would try oranges, lemons, limes, pomegranates, figs, plantains, wheats, potato, tobacco, of course. There were successful trends that pushed the continued development of indigo, and after a few years, the only ones that showed any promise was indigo, ginger, wine, silk, hemp, flax, and tobacco. By 1680, it seemed that tobacco might be the only profitable crop in the Carolinas. There had been some struggles with cotton, but no real successes. Only down the road, paired up with English industrialization, would the price of cotton increase so much to a point that cotton would become king of the American economy. Most of the other staples like wine, silk, and dyes could not be reliably brought up to scale for profitable plantations. It's easy enough to grow a few of something on a local consumption level, but it was an entirely different matter to grow in bulk so that one could make a large plantation profitable. But what turned out to be the first great Carolina crop was was not cotton, like I said, or, or even tobacco. It was rice. Like many events in history, there is no singular event when the government or the proprietors decided to shift to rice production. The first rice experimentation was likely attempted sometime around 1680, and rice on the market would slowly appear here and there until about 1690, when it had become the main crop, along with corn, English peas, and the cultivation of turkey and pork. Carolina would develop its own economy by selling foodstuffs to Barbados, Jamaica, and New England, a response to the English Empire's demand for single most productive crop sources per colony, a complete shift from the self-sufficient beginnings of the Carolinas. Now, I don't want to leave you with an impression that Lord Ashley was a reformer. His goal, much like Lord Baltimore, was to create a countryside of investment for gentlemen and men of honor. 
But the new budding American culture and realities of the new American continent rebuffed his ideas just as it had Lord Baltimore's. But Lord Ashley would leave his mark of the gentlemanly manner by his success imprinting the manorial estates through the land surveying of the Carolinas. Carolina land was surveyed into 12,000 acre squares. 40 squares would constitute a county. Eight squares in each county were reserved for the proprietors, and another eight squares for barons and other nobility. This meant that two-fifths of each county was held by a signatory or English nobility. The remaining three-fifths would be given out to those with headright claims. This division of lands between noble lands and common lands was thought to be as much political objective as it was economic kickback for nobility. This was because, in the 17th century, democracy was associated with revolt, rebellion, and chaos. The popular philosopher James Harrington would write that a nobility of common gentry overbalancing a popular government is the utter bane and destruction of it. A nobility of common gentry in a popular government not overbalancing it is the very lifeblood and soul of it. This is why proprietors thought that handing out lands to balanced nobility with common gentry classes in America was key to a stable and prosperous society. This is why they divided one-fifth to themselves and their heirs, one-fifth to nobles to promote better balance of nobility, and three-fifths to common headrights. In their minds, this was for correct balance of society. The ranks of nobility were even detailed into law. Each county would have two baronies, 48 acres, and two cassocks, 24 acres, with the oldest proprietors residing in the colony automatically becoming governor. When no resident proprietor was present, a governor could be elected by the assembly. Any governor must hold the title of at least cassock. An assemblyman must have title to at least 500 acres of land, and any freeman was eligible to vote only if he possessed 50 acres of land. But much like in Maryland and Lord Baltimore's dream of a new type of colony, the Carolina proprietors pushed headlong into the developing American culture. The nobility that received these lands dropped their title and the inheritance to that title as inappropriate. They, of course, didn't give back any of the lands, just the title. The assembly was quickly empowered to check the governor's authority, a legislative hallmark of the new American assemblies. But with or without official titles granted by the government, the South Carolina economy would be focused around large plantations. The holders of the largest plantations would hold political power for generations. Carolina was paving a new socio-cultural amalgamation of old and new world, one in which large land inheritors would control politics, but it would not be one where feudal bloodline was the mark of inheritance. This culture of large plantation holdings had another significant effect on the course of American history. The economic incentives of these large plantations promoted copying the successful large plantation business model of the West Indies. Most notably among these was the slave plantation model, and mass-scale use of the Negro slave. Immigration of Negro slaves would begin in mass in 1670s, recorded in dry, bureaucratic details within the headright claims of the time. John Sr., John Jr., a Negro Elizabeth. Or in the will of Lady Marjorette Yemens, who was the widow of the governor of Cape Fear. 
880 acres for himself and eight of her proper Negroes named Hannah, Joan, Jupiter, Renti, Gilbert, Raysom, Jose, and Simon, and one manservant, John Hopkins, arriving August 1672 and February 1674. The headrights of a Negro slave were of course given to his or her master, who would receive more land for the number of slaves or indentured servants they brought to the colony. And the Carolina proprietors quickly granted laws that made the master the absolute authority over his slaves. But as one group received the codification of an ancient oppression, others found new opportunities for new freedoms. The Carolina proprietors, old world, genteel, and nobles, had bent to the new American cultural expectation, religious freedom, Carolina reflected in its population both the oppressions of the time and the opportunity in America for these groups to flee to a new American colony. The Carolina colonies received many French Protestant Huguenots who were fleeing the oppression that Protestants faced in Catholic France. They even reaffirmed their acceptance of the troublesome Quakers and going so far as to accept Jews. Out of Carolina's different initial settlements, the most successful would be found around the reestablishment of Port Royal, where settlers would find fertile lands at the confluences of the Ashley and Cooper Rivers, which had good water for a harbor which allowed for Carolina to become the foodstuffs trade partner with the West Indies, Virginia, and New England. Charleston, built there, would also be the start of the new model for new American cities. Because of the available land, these cities, like Charleston, eventually Philadelphia, Williamsburg, and Savannah, would all have organized symmetrical planning, something out of the dream of Lord Baltimore, and something not seen in the tightly packed European cities of old, or the initial colonies rushed into existence by a chaotic nature of early tobacco farming. Thank you for listening to this episode of American Political History. If you want to support the show, please subscribe and leave a five-star rating and share this show with someone you think would enjoy listening. Thank you again, and until next time.